risks. You must take risks in order to thrive. Welcome to I Thrive, the podcast with inspiring stories and practical advice to help you lead a fulfilling and abundant life. A better you starts right now. Well, welcome to another episode of the I Thrive podcast, where we ask our guests, what does it mean to them to thrive? And where you'll hear advice and experiences that will help you live your best life. So my name is RJ Wright and joining me today is my co-host Stanford Webster. How are you doing today, Stan? I'm doing great, RJ. Happy to be here. Glad to hear. Well, I am super excited to introduce our guest today. I've only known her for a week, <laughs> but um, she is an impressive lady. Her name is Lauren Crawford. And she is the head of customer success at a fintech company in Sydney. Originally from Ireland, she relocated from London three years ago with her company. She has studied university in Scotland and Sweden, but Sydney is by far the destination of choice. In fact, she just received her permanent residency this week. So congratulations, Lauren. Thank you. She is a huge advocate for women in sport and believes that supporting young women in sport can go some way to leveling up women's success in the workplace. Lauren plays AFL, lacrosse, and has recently found a passion in road cycling. Lauren was previously in the Royal Air Force Reserves and currently volunteers with the State Emergency Services in Sydney. How are you doing today, Lauren? I am really good, thank you. And even better that I am getting a flight back to Ireland. Pretty last minute now that my permanent residency has come through, but haven't seen family in, in three years, so feeling, feeling pretty good. <laughs> You've got me on a good day. Good for you. Yeah, I think a lot of us are excited to hit the air again and get out of the country and just visit relatives or see some places. So yeah, super excited for you. Absolutely. Thanks. So one thing that your bio didn't say that impressed me is you've had quite the history with boxing. I'd love to hear a little bit about how that began and if you could run us through what your boxing careers look like. Yeah. So I started boxing when I was 15 turning 16. So very, very much a child looking back on it now. And I remember there was one lady in the the year above me at school and she had recently taken up boxing and had went on to win an All-Ireland title. And I remember thinking, wow, that's really cool. And I I was a little bit inspired by that. Um, You know, we weren't friends. She didn't really know me. But it's quite interesting that you you realize that women around you can can have a, a a profound impact on you, even, you know, when you don't know them and something may seem pretty insignificant. So after that initial inspiration, I then started doing a bit of research into boxing clubs and found out that there was a boxing club uh, in the town that was just a, a couple of miles from my local town. So reached out to them, gave them a call, and I guess the rest is history. So um, yeah, I was the first first woman in the club and competed for uh, a couple of years, um, earned a, a title or two. And yeah, I think it's it set me up for success both in the workplace and in, in the world of sport as well. So what was your experience like as the only woman in a boxing club? Did, did that bother you? Were you aware of that? Did that change the dynamics of how the club ran? It's a really interesting question because I think if I were to go to a boxing club now at the ripe old age of 27 and I was the only <laughs> the only woman, I think I would be much more uncomfortable is not the right word, but I would be much more aware of the fact that I was the only woman. I think yeah. back when you're, you know, 15, 16, you're, you haven't been experienced uh, it, well you haven't really had the the unfortunate um 
experience of perhaps being subject to sexism or perhaps being in a male dominated environment. So you just, you know, you're just one of the, one of the kids, you're just there to do the same thing that everyone else is. And you Mm -hmm. really are not aware that, you know, you're maybe in a place that most people think you shouldn't be or, um, yeah. So I think looking back on it, it, it's, it's quite an interesting one. Sometimes being naive can be an advantage in those situations. Lauren, there's not many young women that I know that at 15 to 16 years old would willingly take up boxing. Like that suggests to me that you you know you're very brave, you're confident and you're courageous. Do you look back and think, yeah, wow, I really did that. You know, what was I thinking at that time? Has have you always been courageous? Have you always been brave? I well, looking back on it now, at the time you don't think you're brave, you don't think you're courageous you don't think you're anything out of out of the ordinary but if someone was to tell me the story now as you know a a 27 year old woman of Mm -hmm. this young lady going and competing in a sport where she was the only woman at her club and you know would be in a ring the center of the the center of attention at the the event and and getting you know punched around the place it it is actually quite a, a funny and interesting thing to think about but I think on the piece of courage, it it happens incrementally. So the first piece of courage is actually stepping in the door and seeing what it's like for the first time. The next step in that courage journey is actually, you know, putting your gloves on for the first time. The next step in that journey is stepping in the ring with someone and sparring for, you know, one minute, a one minute round. So when you actually break it down into the, the tiny steps from never having competed before to you know, competing at, at an All-Ireland level. It's not this one massive leap of courage that you have to do. You just have to be courageous to take the, the tiny little steps one at a time. And, mm. you know, over time, it amounts to this pretty, pretty great thing when you, when you look back on it. Yeah, that's that's a great that's a great metaphor, isn't it, for life is, you know, you know runners on a ladder. You, you just have to take one, one at a time. Lauren, I, I'm fascinated. Boxing's kind of always fascinated me. You know, I've always kind of been one of these guys that sit on the couch. In my younger years, I, I used to probably think, oh man, I'd like to try that. As as I've gotten a little older, a little more seasoned, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to get punched in the face. Yeah, then that doesn't uh, that doesn't appeal to me uh, in, anymore. But what was it like, before you take us through your boxing career, what was that first fight like? And what were some of the feelings that you had? Take us through that experience. Yeah, so the first real experience of, you know, a a one-on-one fight, if you want to call it that, is actually you you do sparring before you go into the Mm -hmm. ring to compete. And quite unfortunately for me, being the only woman at the the club meant that I had to spar with my male colleagues. So when you compare uh, a female who's 70, 75 kilos to a man that is 70, 75 kilos, there's quite a stark difference, both in muscle mass and quite often height as well. So my first experience was boxing with uh, a gentleman and who was quite a bit taller than me. And I was very, very nervous. And I can remember he just got one straight jab to the head and you know when cartoons when you see the the you know if if something happens in a cartoon and someone gets hit mm. they see stars well i actually <laughs> saw stars <laughs> and it was it was it was quite an interesting one but 
you you learn to hold back your fear and you learn to not show your fear. And I remember thinking, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, don't make a fool of yourself. <laughs> and I didn't. And, you know, you make it through the rest of the round and you think, well, if I can take on a, a 75 kilo young man who's a foot taller than me, then I can probably do okay whenever I go to fight a woman. So I think that set me up for for success initially. I then had my first fight. Uh, it was uh, an exhibition an exhibition mm-hmm. tournament. So sometimes local clubs will come together and they will throw, uh, maybe it's for a charity event or maybe it's just to get some practice in before we go to uh, a large tournament. And I remember just being absolutely terrified. You do all of this preparation, you do all of this training, you sit in, we used to actually sometimes sit in bin bags to sweat out water weight if you knew you had a match coming up for the weigh-in. Um, you had, I remember sometimes women would come in with their hair wet just to add more grams on it in any way that they could. So yeah, I remember just being completely terrified to the point of feeling sick. And you do all of this preparation, all of this training, you have all of your combinations in your head. And the second you get in the ring, you forget absolutely everything. (laughs) Um, And even looking back on it as well, when you do have the chat with your coach between rounds, you have a minute just to to relax and take everything in. And the second the the bell goes again, you forget everything once again. (laughs) And it's only really after practice that you learn to manage the nerves and learn to actually... You don't have to remember everything that they've said to you, but as long as you remember one or two key pieces, then that's kind of it. And I remember one of the key pieces of information. I thought, if I don't remember anything else, just for goodness sake, remember this. It was just keep your guard up. Mm -hmm. So even if you're tired, if you have your hands up on your face, then the chances are that the jab won't land and your opponent won't get a point. So that was my one piece of, you know, forget 99% and just remember that one thing, then then that will do you just just fine. How many fights into your career, Lauren, did it take for you to kind of feel comfortable in the ring? I don't think I ever felt comfortable in the ring, despite mm. what you may think by looking at someone who was, you know, really well trained, who who looked confident or give the illusion of confidence. You always had doubt that you're going to make a fool of yourself or you're going to go against what your your coach said so I really don't think I, I ever felt confident at any stage despite all of the training that I put in but what I did have have confidence in was my pre-preparation so I when I got in that ring I thought if I don't do well today I know that I have done everything in my power to make me a, a success I remember one, it was en route to the All-Ireland Championships in Dublin. And it was actually my first attempt at going for an All-Ireland title. And I was put up against a lady called Avril Fox. And I remember the first time seeing her and she was very, very tall. And I just thought, oh my goodness. Anyway, got in the ring, ended up losing the match couldn't reach her head she was really that tall and I remember just the car journey home with my coach afterwards it was just dead silence and he could barely even talk to me he was that angry and upset at the situation Um, and after that I guess I thought 
I'm never going to let someone die like that again. So went back, trained a little bit harder and then went on to win three All-Ireland titles and six Northern Irish titles, wow. which made up for a couple of the, the mishaps that we had. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't help that the sporting section of my local newspaper at home said Crawford outfoxed by Avril Fox. So a little bit of a, I can laugh looking back on it now, but that really hurts whenever you see this in the, the local newspaper for everyone to see. Yeah, it's got to be rough to see your failures in print. I've, I've never experienced that <laughs> yeah. today. I've never been famous enough for anyone to write about me, but that's got to be rough. Yeah, at least it was a good pun. I'll, I'll give them that. <laughs> I think that's a critical thing of success, though, right, is that when you fail, that's not the point you give up. That's the point that you recommit and you dig your heels in and you say, no, I'm going to fight for this. And that's where you find success is in that recovery from a loss, not not the absence of a loss. Everyone gets a loss in something in their life, but if you can use that as, as an anchor point to say, no, I'm going to fight harder and I'm going to recommit in a new way, then that that can bring some real wins. Definitely. I 100% agree. Lauren, you've mentioned that you're passionate about women in sport. From your perspective, why is it important that we talk more about women in sport? So it's something that has always interested me. And looking back on myself, both as a child, a young adult, and even now, Sport has been one of the main reasons why I have thrived, why I have succeeded, why I have met so many of my friends and even how I've met a network here in Sydney. I remember my first month of being in Sydney. I arrived here. I had no friends. I knew a few colleagues. I was in an Airbnb in the CBD. It was pretty bleak. My my days were spent either commuting back and forth to Bondi on the on, on the bus because that was all I knew and sitting watching Netflix and I remember just thinking I need to find friends in some capacity. So I joined a local AFL team, North Shore Australian Football Club and from there I just met so many of my really, really, really good and amazing friends and that was really when I started to thrive in, you know, the community that I call home in, in Sydney. But taking it back to why I'm so interested in it and the initial connection that I made between women in sport and women thriving in society, politics, the workplace was we were doing a a training course at work and we were essentially becoming you know, experts in, in how to create a TED Talk style talk. And we were asked to go away and think of a topic that really, really interested and inspired you. And I knew that I wanted to do the piece on women in sport, but I wasn't sure how to actually tie it back to something that was tangible. So my research led me to uh, an EY report that discussed how female athletes were actually more likely to succeed in the workplace. And one stat that I found absolutely really, really interesting was that in their report, 94% of female C-suite executives had been an athlete at some point in time. Now, if you compare that against, I mean, there's multiple sources on this piece of information, but if you compare that to how many women actually play a sport throughout the duration of their life, it will generally be between 25 to 50%. And, you know, it could be a coincidence that 94% of executives have played sport previously um, against, you know, 20 to 50%. But I think, I think that stat is worth delving into and really, really understanding more about. 
Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. It's hard to call 94% a coincidence in my mind. That's a pretty high percentage. Yeah. What is it that you think sport gives, I guess, men and women, but, but women particularly, what is it that sport does for you in business and in the rest of your life? So thinking back on my own experience, because that's obviously the, the one most relevant to me, there's, there's a couple of things within that. The first piece is the, the pain that sport can bring, <laughs> both physical and mental, whether that's being jabbed in the head and seeing stars for the first time in your life, or whether that's the, the mental pain of feeling like you've let someone down a silent car journey for three hours from Dublin back to Fermanagh. Um, I think that it, it makes you realize that no matter what gets thrown at you, that you can always come back and yeah. there's no reason why you can't. And quite often it's a, a catalyst for mm -hmm. future success, if, if anything. So that's the first one. I think the second one is strategy mm -hmm. and any, you know, C-suite executive strategy is going to perform a large portion of their job. And if you think about sport, whether it's AFL, whether it's boxing, whether it's water polo, whether it's running, there will be a strategy of, of some capacity in anything that you do, particularly when you're performing at the highest level of your game, whether that's business or sport. So you start to realize and build a, a way of, of trying to problem solve as a natural way of working. I think two other ones is teamwork, a really obvious one, but yeah. if you are maybe not, you've never played sport, you haven't yet had your own, uh, you know, experience in the workplace, it can be sometimes quite difficult to get exposure to teamwork and actually working with people and particularly working with personalities that you maybe haven't dealt with before so I think those are the the key ones um, and then obviously last but not least is is leadership so whether you are the coach of your team whether you are the captain of your team or whether you're just the strongest player on the back line you are in some way coaching and mentoring those around you without perhaps even realizing it yeah there's that interdependence right as a team you need each other to boost each other mentally and physically to get a win yeah absolutely i think maybe even discipline could come into it as well like disciplining your body and your mind that definitely comes into play in the workplace yeah lots of lots of connections i love that i actually read a, a un report recently that discussed the participation of of women in sport and one of the main topics discussed within that report was that Actually, having women in sport challenges the gender stereotype or, or the or the yeah. the gender norm, and even at my own local AFL team, they only introduced a women's team four four or five years ago now, and that was around the same time as the AFLW. Yeah. Considering that the AFL team North Shore has been around for, I think it's over one hundred years. It's definitely around that time. Yeah. It's taken over 100 years for women to even have a standing or have a presence in the club. So if you are in an environment all the time where you're playing, you know, perhaps as a man, you're playing AFL all the time, you view it as a man's sport. You're not used to having women on par with you doing the same things and experiencing the same things. So you perhaps take that notion into the workplace as well. Yep. Yeah, that's a valid point. I like that. Yeah, it's, it's obvious sports can teach and develop characteristic traits 
that serve you well for the rest of your life, whether it's grit and determination and just that ability to establish that self-confidence that, yes, I can do hard things. If I persevere, if I keep working at it and working at it, I will get better and I can overcome. We just recently watched a soccer game. My alumni, BYU, for the first time reached the, uh, the national championship, NCAA, first division championship in women's soccer. Uh, it was their first time to Final Four as well. And, and they played uh, Florida in the national championship. And the goalie happens just to be a friend of ours. And it came down to a penalty shootout. And just watching her in that situation, I couldn't begin to understand the pressure of that moment. You know, I don't know if there's perhaps more pressure on an athlete in, in any sport than, than soccer in a penalty shootout. Uh, it was gripping. It was, you know, it was a phenomenal event to watch. Unfortunately, BYU lost. Uh, Florida won that game and... I think they went back-to-back national championships. One of the things that I love about uh, the United States is is just how many avenues there are for women and sport when they're competing in high school level because there's such a, a huge sporting culture at universities. There's just all these avenues for women to pursue their dreams, whether it's in volleyball, whether it's athletics or swimming or, or soccer and everything in between. Uh, There's just so many avenues. So I guess, what are your thoughts on the state of women in sport in Australia? Are we in a good place? And where do you see improvement coming from? Great question. And I would have to say that my experience here has actually been overwhelmingly positive. So if I look at the growth, and I'm going to talk about AFL here in particular, because that's what I'm, I'm most close to. Sure. If you look at the the North Shore team that I'm a part of at the moment, they were founded five years ago. And every year from inception of the women's program, there has been a team added every year. So there are now five teams from the premier level right down to, you know, division four, which is absolutely phenomenal. And I think it says a lot about mm-hmm. the perception of women in sport the appetite for women in sport and actually that many men around us want to actually support us if you look at the the club for example the committee is is overwhelmingly men the coaches are all men and it's actually these men around us that have grown the club the women's club to to what it is now where we give upwards of 100 women the opportunity to come out couple of times a week to train and, and also play games every Saturday. So I think it's really positive. There's always going to be a way to go. And even if we look at the, the AFLW program, they did get, well, the, the program increased by 600 million in revenue in 2020. So that actually allowed them to expand more teams for the consecutive seasons. And I think this year or perhaps next year, we'll, we'll actually see a women's Swans team for the very first time, which is incredibly exciting. And I really hope that all of the, the diehard Swans fans in Sydney will actually get around these women, because at the end of the day, each of us have a part to play in, yeah. in the growth of women's sport, which, again, if you have daughters, if you have mothers, if you have sisters, we all have women mm. in some capacity of our lives and we all want them to thrive. And doing something as simple as going along to a female AFL game on the weekend or a female netball game on the weekend, bringing your daughters to that, exposing your daughters to that, Mm -hmm. 
and I know we spoke about the the last day, you, you cannot be what you cannot see. And something as small as seeing a woman compete on the netball field, on the AFL field, might actually trigger something in them to then have the courage to take that first step. No, absolutely. You got to have that vision. Yeah, I love that. Lauren, you're something of an adventure girl. And from the brief conversations we've had, you've mentioned some exciting adventures you've been on. I'm curious to hear what led to your experience reliving a skiing trip in Norway from a World War II story that I hadn't heard before our talk. And I did a bit of research on this. It's actually an incredible story. But what led you to do that? And could you share what that experience was like? Yeah, so when I was at university, I stumbled across the University Air Squadron, which is essentially a reservist squadron of the Royal Air Force. So I spent more time probably flying planes and, and playing sport in my first two years of university than I did reading books, but um, <laughs> that didn't come back to bite me, thankfully. <laughs> and th- through this, through being part of this reservist air squadron, I had the opportunity to go on an expedition. And I really, really love sharing this story because it's a phenomenal piece of history and it's possibly a piece of history that has impacted your life for the better that you've actually never heard of. And I know personally I had never heard of this story until I actually, you know, heard about this trip and decided to apply for it and was very, very lucky to be. I got my, you know, lots of blessings that I was actually selected to go on this course. But it's essentially the the heroes of Telemark. And for anyone listening, I would definitely advise them to go and do a bit of research themselves after. I think there is a a movie of it in some capacity. I'm sure it's Hollywoodified in, in some way, but tells a good story nonetheless. And it was, it, this is arguably one of the most course changing quests throughout World War Two. In Rukan in Norway, there was a, a plant that was actually creating fertilizer. And one of the products, a, a byproduct of creating fertilizer was heavy water. And heavy water is actually needed for the creation of a nuclear bomb. So during Nazi-occupied Norway, Hitler obviously realized the, the benefits that taking control of this factory would bring. So he actually had the entire factory under lock and key of, of many, many guards. And he would then transport the heavy water out of the factory to the, the scientists that he had enlisted to help him in the quest for the first atomic bomb. So British and Norwegian intelligence found out about this and realised what was going to happen. So they got together to try and figure out a way that they could stop Hitler in his tracks from creating an atomic bomb that could have been used to decimate many countries within Europe or, or abroad. So what they did was the first attempt, actually, they sent in some gliders and they initially thought that they would bomb this factory. However, very unfortunately, these gliders actually hit fog on the way there and crashed. So they then had to move to plan B. Now, plan B was to get a couple of what were known as Norwegian saboteurs. And they were exceptional skiers. They were incredibly great at Arctic warfare and obviously very courageous. They Many of them saw it as a, a one-way mission that they were never coming home from. So these team of Norwegians, I think it was five or six, were dropped into one of the wildest areas of Norway. And initially they were actually dropped in in the wrong location and it took them five days to make contact with their reception party to figure out how to get themselves back on track. So they skied. Yeah, it's it's a phenomenal story. And they were in their white snowsuits. They had 
enough resources for a little while, but not the entire time. So what they were doing was actually fending for themselves in this harsh Norwegian countryside and wilderness. And they eventually skied their way to this factory, the Vimork factory in Ruken. And when they got there, the valley down to this factory was so steep and so treacherous that they actually didn't really, the, these Nazis didn't have eyes on the steep entry into the factory because they thought there is no way that anyone could ever get down there. Anyway, they did. <laughs> and um, <laughs> what what happened was they made their way into the factory, uh, snuck past all of the Nazi guards and they actually blew the factory up. And they were able to stop Hitler in his tracks from potentially claiming millions and millions of lives. Wow. The the story did not end there. And perhaps that's um, one thing to maybe have a think about that when you think that the hard part's done, it's only just beginning. The escape was even more incredible. So they had to ski over 300 kilometers on skis in southern Norway, chased by Nazis, both on the ground and in the air and they were able to get back to safety all of them lived to tell the tale and they changed the the entire course of history wow wow and so what was your part in you traveled the same course is that correct for how long did you ski yeah so in the air force or or any of the you know army navy whatever uh a good proportion of what we do is actually looking back on history as well to understand previous tactics and what has happened before us from an educational perspective so this trip was twofold the first piece was to learn about the history of what had happened previously but also the the mental stamina and snow and arctic warfare you know snow holing self-sufficiency all of that kind of thing but we essentially retraced the steps of these norwegian saboteurs and we were fortunate to have two exceptional guides some of the best cross-country ski experts in the world and one of them actually helped create the Raymeer's documentary on the heroes of Telemark. This gentleman knew the saboteurs personally so was able to actually offload a lot of really intimate and interesting kind of untold stories about these individuals to us and we were yeah and, and we actually were able to stay in some of the little huts that they had stayed in in their way there so it was a really humbling and you know I look back and I think wow did that really happen it was just so lucky so grateful and yeah very very eye-opening wow thank you for sharing that I think I think that definitely classifies you as an adventure enthusiast for sure that's some <laughs> that's some serious street cred yep and oh, what a phenomenal story I, I had never heard that I'm really passionate about telling people this story because I think it's an incredible piece of history to be to be locked up. And from what I've heard, that's not your only experience doing some pretty adventurous things. Uh, do you want to tell us about the time you spent an entire month at sea? Yeah, absolutely. So similar to the expedition that we did with the Heroes of Telemark story in Norway, I also had the opportunity to participate in a round-the-world sailing trip and I didn't complete the whole thing, unfortunately. That takes over over a year. But I was very fortunate to be selected for the first leg of the trip, which was roughly a, a 10,000 kilometre trip around the UK across the Bay of Biscay, which if anyone is uh, in the sailing world, they know that it can, it can quite often be a, a treacherous area to sail through. 
and our final destination was Lanzarote. So we were on the yacht for many weeks and it was a very challenging environment. It was cold. You were working on three-hour shifts. So you would essentially do three hours on, three hours off for one rotation and then you would have 12 hours off. So you were being tapped on the shoulder at 3 a.m. sometimes in the pitch dark, freezing cold, you're tired, you haven't eaten properly, you miss your mom. <laughs> there's there's a lot of emotions running high. And again, I, I we, we talked about in the, the realm of boxing and being the only female in what you're doing. But that was the exact same situation on this yacht. So there were, from memory, about 15 of us from both the Air Force and the Army. And we underwent... A lot of training on how to sail. We got our competent crew qualification, but it, it's interesting looking back on the trip because it was one of it was it was a life changing trip. It was phenomenal. We saw whales, we saw dolphins, we fished our own tuna, we did navigational training, we we got the yacht there in one piece. But looking back on it now, one of my key moments that I actually remember from this trip was. There was one night where we had to change the position of the sails. And, you know, everyone was given their task. You do this, you do that, you pull in this rope, you go get that sail. And I remember the skipper of the yacht saying to me, and can you go and make everyone tea? This is this is my order, this is his order. And this was probably something that this individual didn't think anything of at the time. But that that hurt you know and yeah. t- for that to be one of the key things that you remember you know how many years ago was that that's four or five seven years ago of this you know this incredible leg of a round the world trip and you actually remember the time you're that the tea lady being only female on, on the boat someone told you to go and make tea i'm the tea lady yeah you know everyone else is sailing the high seas and i'm milking too sugaring your your tea <laughs> <laughs> wow so how did you deal with that you know what? I would deal with the situation very differently now if it came up. But I think when it's when you are in that position where there's obviously a very hierarchical structure, you are meant to obey this man at every cost yeah. because he's the skipper of the yacht. But particularly in the military for not obeying orders, there are sometimes not very favourable repercussions. So I I think in that situation, it might not have been the right time to challenge or sometimes the situation that you're in actually, you know, you could do yourself more harm than good by by challenging it. So you kind of just head down and get on with it. But I think it was a very valuable lesson for me. And I think it was probably my first real and tangible experience of sexism. It it really was, or at least it was the, the one that really hurt yeah you know maybe there's some other instances where it had happened and it wasn't quite as deep as that or you know had, had the emotional impact on me but yeah I think at the time I kind of just head down I, I went mid 15 cups of tea but if that were to happen to me now I would question why it was me that was making tea you know <laughs> and I'd have the confidence because I've had all of these experiences of playing sport of pushing back of being a woman in a male-dominated environment I would have the confidence to push back on things like that now look and that's one of those experiences that that helps give you a voice today right and helps you have that clarity of of where you stand on this issue and helps bring it to light through mediums like this to the rest of the world so that we can 
be a little bit more aware of these types of things that do go on in the world. And what was that like uh, besides, I guess, that incident? You know, what was it like being just surrounded by, was it 12, 15 men and your fellow crewmates? Did they treat you any different or did they just treat you like all the other crew members? So I think looking back on it now, I think there's definitely a difference in generations. So if I look at my peers on that yacht, I was treated as one of them. I was asked to do the same tasks that they were to do. However, Mm. the leadership were of a different generation and I was definitely treated in a different way than my peers. Absolutely. Which I think is, is, is positive. If we're trying to find a silver lining in this, it is positive in that perceptions are shifting, but it's not enough for us to just hope that this goes away without being intentional. All thriving is intentional, right? It it takes that vision and deliberate effort to make it, make it a reality. Lauren, how'd you get into state emergency services? You know, what appealed to you? How did that come about? Yeah, so another good question. I I guess you would say I have a bit of adventure in my in my blood. Mm-hmm. When I was doing the Air Force many years ago and it becomes this almost alter ego that you have, that you have, you know, your university self, your working self, but you have something that is in this other realm completely. And whenever I finished university, finished up with the Royal Air Force and then went into the working world, you always still crave this little bit more, whether that's giving back to a community or whether that's doing some volunteer work or whether that's just the sheer thrill of, you know, a parachuting course or doing uh, an adventure like this. So whenever I moved to Australia, I really wanted to, to try and get some of that, first of all, adventure back, but second of all, to find a, a new community in which to thrive. Mm. And I know... Thriving was one really important topic of of conversation today. But I think when you look at the self-sacrifice that a lot of these SES members make, it's actually quite, quite phenomenal. And they allow the community to thrive on their own time. They don't get paid for it. They sacrifice time with their friends, family, children Mm. to help others. And I think that is something that I really admired and, and wanted to give back to. Yeah, I'd like to send it. If anybody else happens to be listening to the podcast, thank you for, for those who are part of the SES. That absolutely. I mean, in recent history, we've dealt with massive fires, we've dealt with floods, we've dealt with some serious natural challenges that have tested us, and we're all the better for the volunteers that help us in the recovery. It makes a real difference. Yeah, we're very fortunate to have such a such a credible, such a well funded organization like SES. I think it's one of the great aspects of living in Australia. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Lauren, on what you feel that the relationship is between thriving and giving back to the community or or volunteer work or just contributing outside of the workplace. Yeah, definitely happy to share my thoughts on this. And when when you and I caught up last week, RJ, one of the things that you you left me with was, was what does it mean? to thrive and I'm not going to lie I was pretty stumped by this for (laughs) a couple of days I thought to myself does it mean getting up to go for a run in the morning does it mean that I eat well does it mean that I'm in a great community of friends and I had a long hard think and I think it boils down to three key things for me personally and obviously I can't Mm -hmm. speak for everyone sure but I think the the first one is 
to be healthy, both physically and mentally. You, you cannot thrive unless you have both of those things. The second one is to take risks. You cannot thrive unless you take risks, whether that's in business, it's taking a risk to create a new product, to enter a new geography, to hire that new person. They're all risks and taking risk will lead to your, lead to your business thriving in some capacity. You know, maybe it's even taking the risk to ask that person out on a date and all yeah. of a sudden they're your person and, you know, you thrive, you create a family together or, you know, maybe it's it's taking a risk to, you know, think back to maybe um, prehistoric times of people testing foods from the trees, from the ground. Some of them may kill you. Some of them may <laughs> make you thrive and actually find a new food source. So risks you must take risks in order to thrive so if you are someone who is maybe less comfortable with taking risks it could be perhaps that you just have a have a think to yourself is there more that i could be doing to thrive perhaps i start taking more risks and start off with calculated risks we talked about taking tiny steps towards something that's a bit more astounding but actually just starts with something small and then to your question about my, my third point on thriving, which ties into what you've asked about why is it important in a community? I think in order for you to thrive in any capacity, you have to be surrounded by a community. We are a community species by nation. You need people around you to be able to thrive. And whether that's a friend group, whether that's a good community at work, whether that's, um, you know, sporting related, whether that's in the state emergency services, you almost need something else to to give you purpose and that was the biggest thing for me around having a community and giving back to a community is purpose and purpose allows me to thrive i love that thank you and i think you have more purpose when it's just outside yourself like when when your purpose extends to other people and to that community that really does give you that sense of meaning and i think that's an important aspect because i think some people they find that community Lauren, you spoke about it when you came to Sydney. You inherently wanted to find your group of friends. You wanted to find that community feel. It's in our DNA to be with others and to socialize and to have relationships. And I think everyone is that. You know, for some people, it's their local football club. For some people, it's SES. For some people, it's their religious group. But we all love and want to be part of a community because of the relationships, the feeling and uh, the camaraderie that it brings. It's, it's, you know, it's in our DNA. So I really like what you've shared. And I think, Lauren, you're the only person on our podcast so far that has said um, risk. Risk is part of thriving. I love that. I really like how you shared that and the examples that you gave. This next question, Lauren, might be a little bit difficult for you because you've experienced so many unique things in your life so far, but what are one or two experiences that have helped shape you into the person that you've become today? Great question. I think, and we've already spoke about it, but I think taking that leap into the world of boxing definitely set me up for success later in life. And I remember in my interview for the Royal Air Force I spoke about my success and career in boxing and I remember the who then went on to become my officer commanding he was fixated on this and thought this was incredible and I remember when I joined the Air Force I remember someone saying to me oh you're the girl that does boxing so this could have potentially been one of the reasons that set me apart from 
you know, all the other incredible men and women that I was competing with for my spot in the reservists. And, you know, that you don't think about it at the time, but everything that you do prior sets you up for success later on. And I would say that my time in the Royal Air Force, it, it changed the course of my life in many capacities. It opened me up to many opportunities and, and many things. So I'd say that actually taking the the leap of faith to to do boxing was something that then opened up many opportunities down the line. Then if we take my time in the Royal Air Force, whenever I was then going for my first graduate job, one of the main points of conversation was actually my time in the Royal Air Force. And that could have been one of the reasons why I then went on to become successful in my next graduate job. So boxing led to me getting a spot in the Royal Air Force. The Royal Air Force experience led me to getting a spot as a graduate in my current company. So all of these things are intertwined and linked to one another. Yeah. There's a little quote that I live by that it just says like every experience is preparatory for that which is ahead. Yeah. Everything does set you up for that which which comes after and yeah. that's a cool story. It makes you wonder what you're doing now that's going to be that for you in the future, doesn't it? Yeah, it, sure no, it does. does. It really does. Do you have, Lauren, any quotes, books, any sources of inspiration you really look to or, or would like to recommend to our listeners today? Yes. So it's actually uh, an Instagram account <laughs> and Great. it is called the Female Athlete Project. Mm-hmm. And it was started by Chloe Dalton, who is both a rugby sevens and an AFL national star. You might, you might have heard of her. And th- she's used this profile to really highlight some incredible feats, whether it's world records, whether it's, um, you know, someone entering into the world of professional sport for the first time. She doesn't discriminate against, you know, whether you have a disability, whether you do not. And I think that's really important as well, because if we look at a lot of the athletes, uh, the disabled athletes in, you know, Australia and overseas, they definitely don't get the limelight that all of these able-bodied people do, which is upsetting and we have a long way to go to rectify that. But she doesn't discriminate. On the Female Athlete Project, it highlights women of all abilities, all sports. So, you know, some sports Mm. fly under the radar as well as being less important or less popular or less appetite for women to compete in them. So I think that provides inspiration to me quite often in in seeing these incredible women who have went on to just completely smash records and to do what most people think that they couldn't brilliant yeah we'll we'll definitely have to link that in the show notes thank you for that please do yeah what was that tag again the female athlete project i love your brief comment there too to athletes with disabilities you know i think in my mind the thing that makes an athlete worth celebrating and worth idolizing or, or, or considering as you know someone to look up to is what they've overcome and what they've sacrificed and what they've accomplished there's a friend of mine i grew up with as a young kid who in the last couple of years through a, a diving accident is now wheelchair bound and has had a really difficult recovery he's made it quite public on social media and i have just been so impressed with his story and with how he's gotten his mobility back. He's now looking at wheelchair rugby and and competing in some high-level sports. Like the amount of stuff he's overcome is nothing short of inspiring. And there's a lot to be gained by looking outside the norm. It's not just about world records. It's not just about, you know, who can do the most or the fastest or the best. 
I think there are those that have come from behind who have had a much rougher story that, that are worth celebrating because of what they've accomplished and what they've overcome. Absolutely. And I think with the likes of the, the Paralympics, it's, you know, once every couple of years and at that time, it's the one focal point of conversation. You know, have you seen the swimming event today and how incredible that was? Did you see what happened on the track, you know, running with blades? And it's this really incredible thing that you get so excited yeah. about. But then you don't hear or talk about it for another couple of years. So yeah. I guess the question is, how do we bring, how do we give more spotlight and time to those athletes who are in many ways even more incredible and even more determined and a far better athlete than anyone able-bodied? Yeah. Lauren, we thank you for being our guest today. We wish you all the best. We wish you a very Merry Christmas. Thank you so much, Stan and RJ. I've really, really enjoyed speaking to you both today and hope we can catch up again soon. Our mission is to motivate and inspire to be your best self. Have you overcome adversity in your life? Well, we'd love to hear from you. Contact us at podcast at ithrivenutrition.com.au and we'll get back to you. This podcast has been brought to you by iThrive Nutrition, a premium range of Australian-made practitioner strength supplements specifically formulated to help you thrive. Whether you're training, recovering, or relaxing, iThrive Nutrition helps you do it better. And you can learn more about iThrive Nutrition at iThriveNutrition.com.au or please follow us on the social media uh, platforms. Thank you for listening, everyone. It's time to thrive.